the second to the last line on page 67. Amar HaSeichel, in the continuing dialogue <coughs> between the intellect and the soul of man, the intellect opens up with the following statement. Hazman harishin shiyesh lanu ata, now that we put into its proper perspective everything that we will talk about and all of the different ways in which we will describe God and we've taken care of that issue now we can go back and we can focus on the central issue and move ahead and the first thing that needs to be explained is the first period of time which occupies the most central amount of time of this world whose man Continuing on the top of page 68, whose man his alam yichuda yizbarach? It is to discuss the period of time within which the presence of the the realization of God's oneness and His uniqueness and His exclusiveness is hidden from us. It's not it's not apparent to us. Kahayom hazeh, as it is true today. In other words, the period of time that I'd like to discuss is the period of time in which the uniqueness and the exclusiveness of God is not terribly clear. And just in case you're wondering about what period of time that is, today is an example of it. Kayam hazeh, like today. Hu klaus man And the entire period of time within which there isn't a, a full clarity of God's uniqueness and God's oneness it parallels the period of time within which a man struggles and is challenged to grow and to try to dispel this confusion and to dispel this darkness about God's oneness. They are paralleled. In other words, the period of time in which one cannot see the exclusiveness and oneness of God is not a period of time that we feel this is a terrible period of time and let's just get out of it and it's a doomed period of time and it's, and it's, and it's got so many bad things attached to it. No, this is the period of time of challenge and growth. Who's man This is the period of time within which man is challenged due to that lack of clarity. He's challenged to to try to understand and to look for meaning and to, to, to set priorities and to set goals. This is the Zman, this is the period of time of Avodah Sa'adam. In the period of time where everything is completely clear and God's uniqueness and His exclusiveness and His oneness is, is very clear to us, in that kind of a period of time, in that kind of a period of time, there is no challenge left because it's so clear and it's so compelling we wouldn't think differently we're compelled to do the right thing so the time of confusion is a time of challenge at the same time and this is the way it's looked upon Vehine <coughs> and behold Mechok according to the uh, according to the order of God's ultimate perfection we already said very early on in the text, God could definitely have created this world in a perfect state, lacking all confusion. And there could have been, and then there could have been, um, and then God's actions would have been completely good and completely perfect, and there would be no deficiencies to speak of, and there would be no evils in the world. In other words, the fact that this world was created with confusion is not because God couldn't do any better. It's because God purposefully didn't want the world to begin with, 
with uh, in a state of utter perfection. But being that God, not because God wasn't able, but because God did not want to create a perfect world, but wanted to create a world within which man would have to grow through challenge and struggle, God created something that was totally new and wasn't really... The, the total flow of who God himself was, because if God would have created a world that would have been the utter manifestation of self, it would have been a perfect world. But God originate, created something very original and very new, that doesn't parallel the, the perfection of God. But God created a world not to show what he's capable of doing, but a world that would best suit his created beings. In other words, when God created the world, the decisions in terms of what the world would look like is not, okay, now I'm going to show you what I can really do. That wasn't the point. The point was, what can I do that will most benefit the recipients, the created beings? Similar to a teacher that comes into a classroom and is, for instance, teaching seventh graders general science and happens to have a doctorate in physics, is not going to dump on these seventh graders all of the highfalutin, sophisticated concepts of physics. Now, he can walk into the classroom and say, I'm going to really show my class how brilliant I am. And everyone is going to walk out saying, I didn't understand a word. He must be tremendously bright. But there's no purpose. There's no purpose to that. Right? The, the challenge of the teacher is that to, not to try to just show who he is and give over what what they are, but the challenge of a good teacher is, is to be sensitive to the ones that are listening, to the ones that are learning, and to be able to give to them what's meaningful for them, and, th and to translate it and give it over in a way that they have the ability to comprehend it. That's the good teacher. The good teacher isn't the one that just dumps what they know, and there is no way that the student has to eat it. There's no point to that. It's a nourishing process, it's a nurturing process, and you don't open up a valve with uh, 200 pounds of pressure for somebody that needs a drink of water because the person will only choke. The person can't drink anything that way. And therefore, when God created the world, he didn't create the world in a way that's expressive of, of his ability, but it's expressive of God's key knowledge of what would be best for man at the moment that he enters the world and how he would grow and how he would go from step to step. And this entire system allows man to be, become meritorious, and it creates a system of reward and growth, so that in the end man has a, a degree of self-fulfillment and man can grow. And this brings into this world the, the entire system of right and wrong, and then reward and punishment. And according to this path, Behold, according to this path that God selects for his world, good and bad are equals. And they both come into this world. And it is as available and as accessible good for good people as it is negative for those that choose to do negative things. Now let's stop over here because this is a mouthful and it needs, it needs an explanation. What is, what is Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying here? Let me explain where Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is coming from over here just to give you the general direction of what he's going to do and then we'll get into this particular thing that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying over here. 
What Rav Meishe Chaim Litzat is now introducing us to is essentially two major conducts of God. Now what we're going to learn right now, this evening, in terms of this concept, the two major concepts of God, it is most probably the most central concept that Lozato in all of his works revealed, at least the, the, uh, the non-Kabbalistic works, the ones that uh, people like you and me can understand, is most probably the most monumental concept of all of his works. So let's, let, let me give you an introduction to it and where he's coming from over here, and then we'll get into this particular statement that Lozato is saying. Rameshachayim Lozato introduces us and is beginning to introduce us here to the concept that God conducts his world with two major conducts. One of them is called the Hanhagas HaMishpat, the conduct of justice, and the other one is called Hanhagas HaYichud, the conduct of oneness, the conduct of God's exclusiveness. Now, in this particular paragraph and in the couple of pages that we're going to learn, we're not going to become familiar with this terminology. He becomes much more specific about the terminology later. But you can, you can access that by the fact that I learned the book. So we'll use the terminology from this point. Right? What are these two conducts? The conduct of Hanhagas HaMishpat, the conduct of justice, is the following. God decides that he wants the world not to be a manifestation of his ability, but to be a manifestation of a scheme, a plot, a plan that he has for the world that will be to the most benefit of mankind. That requires that the world not be created in ultimate clarity of God's oneness and his exclusiveness. And once the world is not created in oneness and exclusiveness, Man is challenged between right and wrong, between good and bad, between what is important and what is not, between what is valuable and what is not valuable. And God says, that's what I want. Because I want man to grow. I want man to be meritorious of his levels. I want there to be an interreaction between man and God of cause and effect, reward and punishment. I want man to grow that way because ultimately I feel that that is the way in which man can express his greatest potentials through his own choices, through his own struggles, and this is the system that I want. Now, being that God wants this kind of a system, there are a group of things that happen because God wants this system. First of all, what God does is that, number one, God is not acting himself, if one wants to use that expression. In a certain sense, God is not acting himself. In what sense? Because God is not creating something which is totally compatible to his essence, because he is allowing, by the very fact that he allows confusion, and he doesn't make it ultimately clear and perfect, the oneness and the exclusiveness of God, he at least makes available the possibility for man to elect good, or to elect the opposite of good. So the possibility for evil to be perpetrated, the possibility for evil to come into existence and to become concretized and to become a force and a real strong force in this world, all become possible with this system. In other words, God decides that it's worth it. The system of ch to be challenged, that man can have the choice between right and wrong, that system is ultimately worth it, even though it opens up the possibilities for people to do things which are negative. But all in all, giving man the freedom of choice and the challenge and the struggle, all in all, God says it's worth it. 
Of course, there will be people that will take up that challenge and use the challenge in the wrong way. Not everybody's going to use it towards its productive end. But all in all, I would like to see the world work with that kind of a system. It's worth it. It's worth it. But God knows full well that this requires the creation of a negative inclination. It requires man's having access to the negative inclination. It requires man being able to do whatever he wants and not instantly put into the ground for doing something wrong because then there wouldn't be any choice. Let me give you an example. Let's say a person would make a negative choice and God would say, okay, you made a negative choice. You are one of the guinea pigs of my master scheme and experiment. So down with you. You can't exist. You made a mistake. Well, if something like that would happen immediately when the person would make his first mistake, so eventually people wouldn't make any mistakes, but not because they, they had an affinity for what was right and because they abhorred what was wrong, but because it was just pragmatic to do the right thing. If I did the wrong thing, God would get even with me. Who wants to die? Who wants to commit suicide? But that's not what, that's not what challenge and struggle and growing is all about. Doing the things that are, uh, that I know are pragmatic because I want to save my skin is not the way that a person really grows in any kind of spiritual depth. So therefore, what God has to do is, God has to say, your choice is yours, you can do whatever you like, and I am not instantly going to respond. I'm going to give you freedom, and if you want to go down the tubes, and if you want to become worse and worse, I will give you the freedom to do that. The path that a person wants to take, God says, I will let you, I will let you, I will make it available to you. I'm not going to put any roadblocks up in front of you. And that's, re that's necessary. Because if we're talking about a deserving system, but every time we do something wrong, God makes the adjustment to make sure that it gets straightened out, so then it's not a deserving system. In other words, if I do right, I get rewarded. If I don't do right, God right away takes care of me to make sure that the next time I won't do the wrong thing. So then I'm, I'm cut out of choice. Or, for instance, let's say God would reward every good choice, but God would look away from every bad choice. That would also not... That, that would also be circumventing the system. Why? Because then I know that no matter what I do, it's all fine. If I do right, it's good. And if I do wrong, I know that God will bail me out too. So that's also not a deserving system. A deserving system says there are field rules. There are guidelines. And the guidelines have to be kept. They have to be kept because if the guidelines are not kept, it's not really a deserving system. There is no real challenge if there aren't any guidelines. So what does this system, this hanhaga, this order, this conduct of justice say? Challenge, choice, right, wrong, freedom, the ability to propagate good, the ability to propagate evil, the ability to become fantastically strong in good or fantastically strong in evil. And God allows it all. Right? Because this is all that is required for setting up an authentic system of deserving. That's what's required. Now, looking at all of that, while God doesn't create the evil, man creates the evil by his choices, but the availability, the possibility for man to elect that road and that there aren't dead ends that he can't even entertain or get involved in those things, no, God creates a world where those things are open. In fact, the Talmud says that God created the world with the letter A. He created the, letter with the, the world with the letter A. And I'm not going to go into what that means. It's a very Kabbalistic concept. The creation of the world with letters. 
And God created the world. It's not letters that created the world. But I'm not going to get into that. Letters are really the physical manifestation of spiritual energy. And each letter is a manifestation of another energy. So the Gemara says, for whatever it means, which I'm not going to get into this evening, the world was created with the hay. Now, anybody that's familiar with the hay, as I trust most of you most probably are, know that there is a gaping hole at the bottom of the hay. So the Gemara says, what's the concept of the gaping hole? Misha writes a A person that wants to leave his world, he wants to leave. And that doesn't mean suicide, but it means to live in this world, but be out of contact with reality. Yetzay, he can leave. There are no closed doors. It's wide open on the bottom. There are many different ways to leave. The way that uh, Rabbi Moses Cadavero says it is, every turn and twist is essentially the, is a possibility for an opening that eventually can lead you right out. Now, and it doesn't mean physically out, but it means out of contact with what the world is and what the purpose is and what the reality, what re- the real reality is all about. It's, it's wide open. It's wide open. In any case, so... What does Hanhagas HaMishpat do? Hanhagas HaMishpat essentially becomes the, the precursor for a world that can have tremendous amount of evil in it. And that's certainly not the essence of Hashem. So it starts off that God is not creating a world that manifests His essence, but manifests His will. It ends off by the poor selections of man that it's even more horrible than the moment that God created it. Because man then takes this freedom of choice and does a lot of things with it. A lot of good things, but a lot of bad things. So then when God looks at the world a little while down after man has exercised a choice, it's even further away from being a manifestation of what God's essence is all about. But that's the world in which God creates it. There's reward and punishment if it comes sooner or later. There's cause and effect. Man, God... God waits for man to do things and then God reacts and God responds and that's one whole conduct. And in that conduct, lots of things happen. There are good things, there are bad things, there are rewards, there's punishments, there's tzaddikim, there is shayim, there are righteous people, there are wicked people. It's the whole chalent that this world is. That's, that's the world. Right? And it can, when it gets bad enough, present all kinds of philosophical questions. Hey, where's God? But this is a whole hanhuga. This is a whole conduct. And God says it's worth it. It's worth it. The freedom given to man to struggle and to grow, it's, the whole thing is worth it. While we're in the midst of it and while we see how people misuse the freedom, we can't really comprehend why in the long run it's worth it. But we have a very limited view. We only see it from our perspective or, or from the perspective of as many people that we can take into our perspective. But the whole past, present, future of the world and to comprehend that there's a system and there's a scheme for it and that it will all end right is something that's really beyond our capacity. We, we would have to have the ability of taking in a scope of thousands of years, past, present and future in order to be able to legitimize a decision of this nature that allows so much evil. So I'm being very frank and honest with you when I tell you that it's an incomprehensible. It's really, from a logical point of view, we don't have enough of the, of the touch on the past, present, and future to, to legitimize this. We can argue it intellectually, but in the reality, we can't legitimize it. We can't, uh, in, you know, lo- on a logical plane, legitimize it. 
Trust is a different issue. If we can trust that it has an end, that's a different issue. But I'm saying on a logical plane, it becomes, it's difficult. Now, there is a second conduct. The second conduct is Hanhagas Hayichud, the conduct of God's oneness and his exclusiveness. Now, what's this conduct of God's oneness and exclusiveness all about? What is this? This is a conduct in which God looks into his world and says that I created this world with an ultimate goal that man should come to the clarity of God. And in coming to the clarity of God, want to be with God and emulate God and be fulfilled and happy with that connection and relationship with God. That's what I want. Now, God looks into his world and he's taking a survey of what's happening in 1987 and he's saying, you know, all of this freedom that I'm giving to the world, if, if I don't get involved in any way in what's going on in the world and I leave it totally up to man doing and I will respond, this world will never get to where it's supposed to be going. It's not going to get there. At best, the world will be a rocking chair that will go back and forth between good and bad and go no place. So there is virtually no guarantee. There's virtually no guarantee that ultimately enough choices will be made by people to get this world to that ultimate goal of clarity. Two steps forward, one backwards, or better yet, one step forward and two steps backward. How is there a guarantee that the ultimate goal that God is committed to, that man should ultimately reach clarity and ultimately should reach fulfillment, how is that ever guaranteed? If it's left up to us, it's at least a question if we're going to get there. Because if it's, if it's up to us and it's a totally our freedom, well, whoever says that enough people will have the sense to make the choices that will make these things ultimately clear? Who says? There's virtually no guarantee. And looking into this, this world without being terribly facetious, looking into this world, it's not only who says, but it's highly improbable. Because looking at the world and seeing what's going on in the world, it certainly doesn't seem to be going in any kind of a direction towards that kind of a goal. So therefore, there is another conduct of God. And that second conduct of God is called Hanhagas Hayichud. What is this conduct, Hanhagas Hayichud? Hanhagas Hayichud says that God will not interfere with the choices of man and will not get involved in, in, in uh, dissipating the freedoms of man or the development of man, either good or bad, by virtue of his choice. But God will say, I will, within the choices of man, make sure that the world slowly moves in a direction towards that goal. In other words, without conflicting the choices of man, I will make sure that the world moves ahead. Now, I will give you, I will give you a number of examples of this. I will give you a number of examples of this. <clears throat> Let's take, for instance, going back to biblical times, Paro, the king of Egypt, makes a decision. He knows that the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born. So therefore, he makes a de decree, indiscriminate, Jewish or non-Jewish, because in the, in the astrological findings that he had, he couldn't find out if the person would be of Jewish origin or non-Jewish origin. He therefore made a decree that all males that are born in a certain period of time should be put to death at the time of birth. Okay, That's his decree. Did God get in the way of the decree? Or did God let Paro, Paro make his decision? God let Paro make his decision. But God arranges that Moshe, who is to be the savior of the Jewish people, was born early. So the officials still do not know about this birth. 
and they hide the child, and then when the time comes, the child is put out on a on a, on onto the waters. Only know God only knowing what's going to happen to the child, but they couldn't hide the, child, hide the child any longer. But if the child was out of the house by the time the officials came knocking on the door, because they came to nine months, by nine months the child was out of, by the nine month period of time when the expected birth was, the child was already away, unaccounted for, right? missing in action. Nobody knew where the child was. But precisely where the child is put is precisely where the daughter of power goes to bathe. And, Paro, and the daughter of Paro has tremendous compassion on the child, sees various miraculous things happening to herself in relationship to the child, and decides to bring this child home and adopt this child. So the Savior of the Jewish people is, is nurtured, fed, and grows up in the house of the person that made the decree that the Savior of the Jewish people should be put to death. So, God on the one hand is not getting involved in the to, to circumvent the choices of Paro. That's your Bechira, you have your choices, do your choices, become the evil person that you want to become and you will be dealt with. But the Jewish people have to leave Egypt and they need a savior. And if they need a savior, in spite of everything that you try to do, I will sidestep, not conflict with you, not negate you, but I will sidestep you and I'll get the job done. Let's give another example. And the irony of it is fantastic because the very person uh, the very person that was working against the destiny that God had in mind in fact helps the destiny without, confli- without conflicting his choice. Let's give another example of this. At some point, I mean, when the plagues were brought, then... I mean, okay, I'll, c- I'll come to that. I'll come to that. I'm just trying to give you the outside parameters of it, and then I'll then I'll come to then I'll come to these things. It doesn't always remain like that, but I'll 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 come to that. It's a very intricate thing, but I just want to describe its just the general rules first. Let me give you another example. All right, in his wickedness kills Vashti. Right, but that was the greatest thing that ever happened to us, because by Vashti being put to death. Esther has the ability of taking over and then becoming a petitioner for the survival of the Jewish people. So here, Achashverosh, with his own hands, brings into his kingdom the very person who is going to make the Jewish people survive against what his real will is all about, Achashverosh's. Is Achashverosh not let to make his choices? No, Achashverosh, go make your choices, your negative choices, but the job that has to get done will get done. This is God's involvement in Hagas Hayichud. This is, God, in other words, this is God's commitment to the world. When God says, when God says very clearly that in spite of the choices that man makes, the world must march forward, and the things that have to happen will happen. Finished. Let me give you one last example of this, and then I'll get into some of the intricacies. So one of the things that you pointed out, all right? Um, Eli Melech is a fantastically wealthy person. Fantastically wealthy. And he makes a decision that rather than help support all of the Jews of Jerusalem for ten years of famine, which the, the Gemara tells us he had the resources to do, he opts out. And he decides he's going to go to the fields of Moab where loving kindness wasn't a tremendous attribute. Nobody's going to knock on his door. It was a felony to give in the fields of Moab. You could be thrown into the clink for something like that. 
So it was a terrible choice on Elimelech's part. He destroyed himself. He destroyed his family. His two children married non-Jewish women. But one of those two non-Jewish women happens to be Rus, who converted to Judaism, who becomes a, an essential link in the chain to bring King David into the world, and eventually, Melech HaMashiach. So the choice was a bad choice. But God says within the context of the bad choice, running away from helping the Jewish people, the help of the Jewish people will be guaranteed. This is Hanhagas HaYichud. Now, in Hanhagas HaYichud, I might point out that there is a dramatic difference between Hanhagas HaYichud and Hanhagas HaMishpat. In Hanhagas HaMishpat, the first conduct, God does everything in a justified response to what man has done. You don't deserve it, you won't get it. Hanhagas HaYichud doesn't work with deserving. Hanhagas HaYichud works with God says, I have an ultimate goal for man. And I want to be able to give these things to man. And because I have this ultimate goal, deserving or not deserving, the world must march forward. So while Hanhagas HaMishpat is exactly that, Mishpat, justice, and nothing will eke out of Hanhagas HaMishpat that isn't deserved, in Hanhagas HaYichud it doesn't work by deserved, but it works by what God's plan is. Hanhagas HaYichud is a manifestation of God's shlemus, of God's perfection. Because that's the manifestation not of what man does, but what of, God, of what God's deepest desire for man is. And the deepest desire that God has for man is a manifestation of God's essence, His total goodness. So Hanhagas HaMishpat is like saying that God is saying, I'm tying yourself to you. What you do is the way I will respond. So you do good, I'll respond good. You'll do negative, I'll have to respond in negative ways to you. So God is tying himself to man. And then what happens is not necessarily a manifestation, certainly not of God's essence. Hanhagas HaYichud says it has nothing to do with deserving. Hanhagas HaYichud is something that flows from what God's ultimate desire and deepest hope was that's rooted in the very essence of what God is all about. Goodness. That's what Hanhagas HaYichud is all about. Now, the truth of the matter is that of the two conducts, the one that is more apparent is obviously Hanhagas HaMishpat. It's all around us. We see good and bad. We see righteous people and wicked people. We see reward and suffering. Hanhagas HaMishpat is the more apparent thing that shows itself to us. That by and large, Hanhagas HaMishpat, we've got questions with Hanhagas HaMishpat. Sometimes we don't even see the Hanhagas HaMishpat either. Where was God then? And where was God here? And, but what we do see is, is at least parts of that general conduct. We certainly see bad things. We certainly see suffering. We certainly see good. We see a combination. We see a chalant. This is all part of the, what evolves from Hanhagas HaMishpat. Hanhagas HaYichud is very elusive because it's God's secret workings that very often are to the confi confounding, com completely confounding to man. Uh, a perfect example of this. Jacob is sitting and crying that he lost his son Joseph. Right? And doesn't understand, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you take away my cherished son Joseph? And in the meantime, God is busy making Joseph into a king in Egypt, or a viceroy to the king in Egypt, that will that'll guarantee the survival of the Jewish people, and for that matter, the survival of a major portion of the world. And God makes the statement, Yaakov is sitting there grumbling and crying why I was so in, why I was doing something which seemed to be so negative and I'm busy making him into a king. 
So Hanhagas Hayichud is something which is very not apparent to us. Very often not apparent to us at all. And it is the Hanhaga Hanisteris, it's the hidden conduct, that very often we have to look back a hundred, two hundred years behind us with with the intelligence of hindsight of hundreds of years and all of a sudden we gain an insight into the wisdom of what was really going on beyond, behind the scenes. Now, Hanhagas HaYichud and Hanhagas HaMeshpat, I must tell you, only God can play that delicate balance. No person put into the cockpit of becoming the master planner and director of the world would be able to balance these two conducts without messing one of the two up. Because to play, so to speak, two roles, to play the role of I will only respond to what man does and always remain faithful to that and at the same time make sure that the world moves ahead and that one conduct doesn't conflict the other conduct is something that needs a mastermind. Only God can do that. We're man to be able to try to figure that out, that how things shouldn't conflict the freedom of choice, and at the same time, the things should move ahead and not backwards. This is, this is only in God's capacity to do. There is no contradiction at any point in time between the two. What I might, tell, what I might say, which is accurate, is that sometimes the primary conduct is Hanhagas HaMishpat. And the secondary conduct is Hanhagas HaYichud, and sometimes it's the reverse. In other words, there are certain times in the history of the world where God departs from Hanhagas HaMishpat and says that Hanhagas HaMishpat, the reward, punishment, cause and effect, will not be the primary conduct of the day, but the secondary conduct of the day, and Hanhagas HaYichud becomes the primary conduct. In other words, there is no contradiction they both exist at all times, but which one is the primary one? Which one is the secondary one? That can always be a delicate balance. That can always be changing. And I dare say that at certain critical crisis periods of time in Jewish history, where even if we don't deserve it, things happen to move us ahead, are examples of Hanhagas HaYichud in the primary. And the Hanhagas HaMishbet is, so to speak, put on the back burner. Not that it's ever forsaken, but it's put on the back burner. So there are periods of time where God says that Hanhagas HaYichud takes over. It becomes the primary conduct of the current events. When you look at the current events, they are clearly not the product of Hanhagas HaMishbet, but they are much more the product of Hanhagas HaYichud. Let me give you an example of this. The Jew, when he left Egypt in the ten plagues, as you pointed out, there is a lot in our literature says that, that says that the Jew really didn't deserve to go out of Egypt. However one understands it, and it's not really a discussion for now. He really didn't deserve, he was in 49 gates of impurity, and if he would have stayed a moment lo lo longer, he would have gone into 50. So God pulled him out in the last second. So to say that when the Jew left Egypt he was deserving of everything that was going on, he wasn't deserving. So everything that unfolded over there was primary Hanhagas HaYichud. And Hanhagas HaMishpat also played a role. You can't say that it didn't play a role because what happened to Paro and to what happened to the nation of Egypt, certainly they deserved. So it's not to say that what happened to Paro wasn't deserved, so there was a Hanhagas HaMishpat, but at the same time, the Jews leaving was not really a totally deserved thing yet. So what legitimized that part of it? 
Well, and in fact, according to most interpretations, it was 190 years earlier than it was supposed to be. So what prompted the exodus at that moment in time? Because they would have fallen into 50. But if they deserved to fall in 50, they should have. Hanhagas hayichud. God says that if they fall into 50, that's going to threaten the very goal that I have for the world because that's already the point of no return. So then God says, Hanhagas HaYichud has to become primary. I can't allow the Hanhagas HaMishpat to go to the point of them falling into 50. That's a limitation. That's, that's a cutoff point. Right? Let's give another example. Let me give some examples. It's a very intricate concept. I would, I would like to cover as much as I can in terms of just the scope of the concept, and then I will gladly take questions. But allow me to just get the scope of it, and then I'll take as many questions as this. This is a very, very difficult issue. So let me just give the scope of it. Um, <clears throat> So we have Hanhagas HaYichud, Hanhagas HaMishpat. Now, I want to point out something. You know, when we analyze, when we analyze Hanhagas HaMishpat and Hanhagas HaYichud, when we analyze these two conducts, and we think to ourselves, how could they not be in contradiction? How could they never collide with each other? It's really fantastic. It's really amazing. Rav Moshe Chaim says, while I'm not prepared to do it, only God can do it, I would like to give you a insight in why they never collide. Not how they never collide, but why they don't collide. And this is an extremely beautiful thing that Lozado says. He doesn't say it here, he says it a little bit later, but I think it's meaningful for us to get it over here and you'll see why very soon. I have an axe to grind this evening. Hanhagas um, HaMishpat with everything that I described Hanhagas HaMishpat to be, that conduct of cause and effect, reward and punishment, good and bad, the non-clarity of God's exclusiveness, all of it. If one would ask the question, under all of it, what is the ultimate motivation of God that initiates a Hanhagas HaMishpat? What is the underlying motivation? Right? The underlying motivation, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says, is a four-letter word called love. Ahava. And he feels, and God feels, that this is, the, yes, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline, but it's love. To institute such a system of challenge and struggle and to allow things the, to, to develop in the ways of the choices of freedom takes a tremendous amount of discipline. But that discipline is worth it because God's of tremendous commitment of love. Sometimes we will punish somebody. Sometimes we will push somebody aside. Sometimes we will act in a very negative way to a person and deep down we can, we, it hurts us to do it because we love the person. So how do we accomplish doing it? Because we love the person so much, we demand of ourselves that discipline. That's why when the Jews, when, when the d temple was destroyed and the enemy came into the temple, they saw the two face, angelic faces on top of the Aaron facing each other. Now, the two angelic faces only faced each other when God wanted to say, I love you. 
That's the only time. And when God was annoyed with us and angry with us, they faced away from each other. So how is it that when the enemy came into the temple, they found the angelic faces facing each other as if to say, there's tremendous love here? So the Hasidic masters answer this and they say that it's pre- it was only because of God's tremendous love that he, could, uh, that he could have controlled and disciplined himself to allow such a punishment to come into being. It's because of the Ava. It's because of the tremendous Ava. Now, essentially, Hanhagas HaMishpat, no matter what comes out of Hanhagas HaMishpat, the bottom line, what is the motivation? God's love to do for man in what God believes to be the best for man out of his love. What is Hanhagas HaYichud? The conduct that pushes towards the goal that also comes out of God's love. So Lazaro says both conducts essentially come out of one root. They come out of a root of love. So since it all comes out of love, they don't collide. In other words, if a person sometimes responds out of love and sometimes responds out of hate, and he's motivated by both emotions, so it's very conceivable that a person can do two conducts that are contradictory with each other because they're coming out of two different motivations, they're coming out of two different sources. But if everything comes out of love, if it all comes out of love, so sometimes Hanhagas HaMishpat is the best expression of the love, sometimes Hanhagas HaYichud is the best expression of the love. But being that the heart is one with, with man, and the, the, the commitment is the commitment of love, now all it becomes is a question of which is the most ideal process, which is the best methodology to use in the, in the manifestation of love. So sometimes it's Hanhagas HaMishp. Sometimes it's Hanhagas HaYichud. And it's combinations. More of one, less of the other. More of the other, more, less of the other one. But being that it all comes out of a heart that's committed to one goal, to one thing, the love of man. So therefore, there will never be a collision. A collision can only come when there's a contradiction in motivations. All, all colliding comes when there's a contradiction of purposes that we want to serve when there's a contradiction in purposes that we want to serve. Sometimes we play this game, sometimes that game, and very often they can collide. But if it all comes out of love, right, if it all comes out of love, they won't collide. Now, <coughs> allow me another, another little while, okay, and then I'll take questions, because there's one thing that I, w- I really want to, I want to say this evening, which is very important as we are approaching Rosh Hashanah. And the way I'm going to say it, it could be that a few of you have heard this from me, but the way that I'm going to say it is, is somewhat, um, somewhat of a story, but it's important to say. It's important to say. The Gemara in Marcus, the Talmud in Marcus says that there were certain crimes that a person perpetrated when we had a Jewish court that people had to give punishments. The court decided the punishment and then the court had people that gave the punishment, that executed the punishment. (coughs) One of the punishments that were given for certain do-nots in the Torah when we had Jewish courts was hitting the person. 39 Malchus. It was Malchus, whatever you want to call it, flogging or whatever you want to call it in English. I don't know what the name of it is in English. And there's a lot to learn about 
how it was given, how it preserved the dignity of man, even though it had to be given, how the person had to be measured, how much he was able physically to take. It, it's, there's a whole chapter about how punishment is executed. In, in this chapter about how punishment is executed, the Gemara says the following thing. The Gemara says that the people that were chosen to, to execute the whipping, the flogging, the Gemara says they were Yisere Mada. They had a tremendous intellectual capacity, the people that did this. And they were Chalushe Koach. And in terms of physical strength, they were weaklings. These were the, and these were the people that were given the job. So, my Rebbe of blessed memory, Riputna, said that they were physically weak is very understandable. They needed to be punished. We didn't want anybody to overdo it. So we chose people that weren't brutes. We chose people that weren't terribly strong in their, in their force. Fine. But where does, why did they have to pick people with tremendous... Yisere Mada is the expression, with tremendous expanded consciousness, if you want to use uh, an L.A. term. A tremendous sense of awareness. Right? intellectually great people. Where does that come into it? Now, the only thing that needed any kind of sense, mind you, was to count. Because you weren't allowed to give the person less, you weren't allowed to give the person more than what he deserved. Now, counting doesn't really take a tremendous amount of intellectual capacity. And there were people that were there to help the person that did the execution of, of, of of this kind of a punishment. So it wasn't left up to one person either very interesting, parenthetically, it comes into my mind, so it's a, it's a sign that I should say it. It's very interesting that as they gave the punishment, there were certain verses that they said. And one of the verses that they said, we say, we say every Monday and Thursday, that God in His tremendous compassion purifies us from the impurities of the things that we do wrong. This is one of the verses that said. There are many things that are said that make the punishment not just come some kind of a vengeance or some kind of a physical punishment, but something extremely meaningful for the person to grow spiritually from. In any case, so this is the question that Riputna asks. What do we need? Intellectual giants to give the punishment. Fine. The following... He says the following. He says there was a story said about Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta was responsible for um, for making a separate subject, bringing together from all over the Torah everything about ethical teaching. And the reason why Rabbi Yisrael Salanta was so successful at it was because he himself was a great ethical person for himself. And that's what made it so meaningful. In any case, one morning Rabbi Yisrael wakes up and he tells his... There's a biography available if anybody wants to read it in English. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta wakes up one morning and he tells his disciples that he has to go to a certain village because he has to pay back a certain person a sum of money. So his disciples look at him in total amazement and say, certainly you can send a courier service, a messenger service. A person of your stature has other things to do than to travel to another town to, to pay back uh, money to a certain individual. So Rabbi Yisrael said to his disciples that in Jewish law I'm required to deliver the money. 
So his disciples look at him in total amazement and they say, where does it say anywhere in Jewish law that when money has to be delivered, that it has to be delivered by one particular person? With the exception of when you're marrying a, a woman with money and even there a messenger can be used and you want to make the, the, the ceremony by a gift of money, a messenger can be used even there. So there's nowhere in Jewish law that it says that you can't use a messenger. You've got better things to do with your time, Rabbi Yisrael. So Rabbi Yisrael says, maybe in your Shulchan Aruch it doesn't say it. Maybe in your code of Jewish law it doesn't say it, but in mine it says it. So the disciples challenged him to find in your Shulchan Aruch, so let it be in yours, but find me in your Shulchan Aruch where it says it. So Rabbi Yisrael told them the following thing. Rabbi Yisrael said, the Gemara says that in the times of King David's rule, a tremendous famine came for three years. And King David um, wanted to know the reason for it. Things happened for reasons, and King David turned to God and asked for the spiritual reason, the spiritual source for a famine for three consecutive years in Israel. And the answer that King David got from God was that the famine came for two reasons. The first reason that the famine came for was because when King Saul died, he was not eulogized correctly, appropriately for his stature. And the second reason the famine came was because in King Saul's reign of power, he did an awful thing. He went back on a pact that he had made with the Givonim and a treaty that he, a peace treaty that he made with them, and he had killed out a segment of the Givonim. And because of these two things, a famine comes. So the Gemara scratches its head, so to speak, and says, this is a contradiction. On the one hand, you're saying the famine comes because Shul's statue was so great that he wasn't eulogized correctly, and God wants to tell the people how great Saul is, and that you did uh, a terrible thing by not eulogizing him correctly. So we're building up Saul... Right? And at the same time, out of, the, out of the other side of your mouth, you say that the reason the famine came was because King Saul committed a crime, that he went back on a pact that he had made with the Givonim. So the Gemara says, make up your mind. Are, we, are they suffering because Saul was a good guy? Are we suffering because of something that Saul did that was wrong? Make up your mind, but how do you have both together? So the Gemara says, no, we have both together. What does this mean? That's a very enigmatic answer. But the Gemara's answer essentially is the following. When Saul, and I'm, I'm going to skip the questions and answers, and I'll get to, straight to the point. When Saul went up after his death to Shemayim, up to heaven, to be judged for his lifetime, right? the first thing that came to God was how can I rightfully bestow upon King Saul everything that he deserves for his, for his glorious life? For everything that he did in his life that was meaningful and good. That is the first and essential question that God asks in any judgment of a person. That's the first question. So then God goes through the entire list and finds out that Saul is a tremendously great person, so great that the people that are left behind are held responsible for not appreciating his greatness. And a famine comes because they didn't appreciate his greatness. Now, God is preparing himself to give Saul everything that he deserves for a tremendous lifetime 
of, of spiritual contribution. And lo and behold, God sees that there are certain things that are preventing Saul from being able to absorb the spiritual reward. There are barriers. Saul is not able to absorb everything that God is ready to give him as a reward for what he did. What are those barriers? Certain inconsistencies. Certain things that he did that were inconsistent with his greatness. For instance, going back on the pact with the Givonim. So God says, now I have to, I have to reckon with the wrongs and for that the people will also suffer a famine and Saul will also have to be dealt with. Saul will have to be purified from this inconsistency so that when I'm finished with purifying Saul from this inconsistency, he can be fully open to receive the spiritual reward for everything that he did. So the Gemara says there's no contradiction. Saul is being judged and God is seeing all of the good of Saul and that's what God sees as the central focus. But God says, okay, but now it's coming to the time to give it to Saul. Saul has rendered himself incapable of fully appreciating the reward because of certain inconsistencies. So therefore, there must be certain, a certain purity process for himself and for the people that were involved with him in order that Saul will be able to absorb the rewards. So there's no contradiction. Now, I don't know if you realize what I just said. But what I just said now was that when God judges a human being, God's primary motivation in judging the human being is how can I give this person the good that he deserves? That is the... That is the in other words, if we would want to know what the Koach Rishon, what is the central thrust that motivates God to judge man, is let's see what I can do for man. Let's see what I can give man. As a, as a secondary, as a bounce off from that, God all of a sudden sees, oh my goodness, he's thrown up a wall here and it, there's an inconsistency here and he's rendered himself incapable to absorb because of this, that and the other thing. So, so to speak, on the rebound, God has to deal with, with, with the negatives. To become extremely simplistic, you take a ball, okay, and you throw it as hard as you can. So, as hard as you throw it, okay, as hard as you throw it is referred to as the first koach, the first thrust. When it hits the wall and bounces back, the fact that it bounces back, that's koach sheni. That's already a secondary force. It hits the wall and it bounces back. When God judges man, the koach rishon, what is the first thrust? How can I give man? The bounce back is that God is, is presented with barriers. He's, he wants to throw as hard as he can, but there's a wall there. And things bounce back, so to speak. So God has, becomes involved in punishment and judging the person for the negatives as a secondary thing that comes out of the fact that he wants to give man. So Rabbi Yisrael Salantis said the following. This is the Gemara. So Rabbi Yisrael Salantis said, I have to go to this individual and I have to give this person a piece of my mind. I have to criticize this person in a way that is impossible to deal with. It's going to be very difficult and I have the responsibility to do it. So if I send the money through a messenger, and but, but when I criticize him, I'm going to go personally and give him a good criticism in a cup over the head. So how is he going to feel? 
the way he's going to feel is that I'm no good. There's nothing good about me. All Rabbi Yisrael sees is the negative in me. And he's judging only the negative part of me. So Rabbi Yisrael says, I can't do that. God has to, man has to emulate God. So I'm going to go. And I'm going to give him the privilege of visiting him and giving him the honor of my visit to let him know that I see him as a total person and I see all of his good and he's deserving of the visit. And after I communicate the message of how good he is and how valuable he is and how I consider him a very important individual, on the heels of that, I will tell him, but this is inappropriate for what I feel that you are. Everything that you are that made me come to see you and spend time with you, it's inconsistent with this thing. So Yisrael said, maybe in your Shulchan Aruch it doesn't say it, but in my Shulchan Aruch that says that man should emulate God in the way that he gives just judgment, in the way that he criticizes, in the way that he tries to correct another person, in my Shulchan Aruch it says it. So Rav Hutna pointed out, and Rav Hutna said the following thing. Rav Hutna said, when the person had to give the, the judgment... He had to give the other person a whipping. So we wanted two things. We wanted that the whipping itself shouldn't be very hard. So we got people that were physically weak people. But when a person hits another person, even if it's in the execution of punishment, there's two things that go behind the hitting. There's the physical act, and then there's also the, the kavana, the soul. The person that had to hit another person as a punishment for something that the other person did spiritually wrong, I wasn't just acting like a robot. There was a nefesh. There were, one nefesh was punishing another nefesh. One soul and the energy of one neshama was punishing another person. So when I hit another person, I'm not only doing it physically, but there's feelings that go behind it. So, in the laws of who was able to do this, the Gemara says you had to take a person that had expanded awareness, expanded consciousness, so that when he would hit this person, he, would only, he wouldn't only focus on the negative of the person, but he would be able to see the total person. If he would see the total person, so when he would hit the person, he would, in the hitting of the person, there would be, the, the hitting of the person would be diminished in the soul part of the hitting because he would be seeing the whole person. In other words, just to select the person who's physically weaker is not enough because you could be physically weaker, but whatever you do, you do with, with all of the, he's a bad person because he did this and right now I'm focusing on the negative thing that he did and I'm going to beat it out of him. That's not what the punishment was. The punishment was the ability to see the whole person and you're such a good person and there's so much good about you. How did you get this nonsense into you? I want to take away the thing that's spoiling the, the goodness of you. That already needed, you say, Ramada. That already needed a person that had a broadness that wasn't narrow-minded. And in life, it's also like that. Think of it. In life, very often, when some people do things that are bad, especially when they do it to us, what is our normal reaction to that? If he did that, he's no damn good. And anything that he does is not worth it. I don't care how many mitzvahs he does, and I don't care how much good he does. If he could have done that, he's wiped out. He's out of my book. That's not the derech. That is not the path. 
when we look at another person and certainly when we try to evaluate another person vis-a-vis ourselves and even if another person is doing something which is negative we have the challenge of looking at the entire person and in the context of the entire person not to whitewash the negative thing but in the context of the entire person then and to communicate your feeling about the entire person then you can be much more successful in the relationship with the other person. But if you only focus on the negative thing and you only give the other person the vibes that you know only the negative of the other person, you will fail miserably in doing anything constructive with the other person. And rightfully so, because you are communicating a feeling to the other person about himself that's not justified. The person is more than just the negative thing. The person is much greater and much bigger than that. And when you deal with the person, it's in the total perspective that you have to deal with the person. I remember when I was growing up, and I think I shared this with you a few times, and maybe because I'm sharing it so many times because it stays in my mind so much. My mother and my father uh, raised us a, a bit differently. My mother always went straight to the keshkas. You did something wrong, it was negative, and so on and so forth. That was a technique. And we won't go through all the gory details of that technique, but that was a technique. But there was one technique that was, that was um, much more painful, though um, ostensibly it wasn't so visible. When my father said, You're such a person, and you're so good, and you do so many good things, and you're so sensible, and you're so this, and you're so that. How did you get this Narishkeit involved here? Why, do you, why are you spoiling such a good thing? Oh, I would have done anything not to hear those words. But those are very, that's very constructive because that's looking at the total person and that gives the person the strength of making the correction from the total person. As, as, a, as the total person. Now... <coughs> but that issue shows the, the losing the trust of the person who you hold high in esteem. What? That what you just said is with your father is that more than that it speaks of the relationship you have with him and how when he would say that you would feel that you had lost something in his in his in his sight of you. One second. There's two issues. There definitely is the issue of esteem and how you're seen in another person's eyes. But besides the esteem and how you looked in 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 another person's eyes, there's also the issue itself. If the words are true, that you are a good person, and this is an inconsistency with that, a person can't live with contradiction and inconsistency. That's why a person works a million miles an hour to make rationales for everything. Because we can't deal with the personal inconsistency. We want to believe that we're good, and when somebody points up that you are good, but this is inconsistent with the goodness, this is the most powerful way that a person deals with a constru- a constructively making a change. And there's nothing unauthentic or untruthful about it. I'm not saying this is a scheme or a plot. This is the real. This is the real person. And if I dare say that if we use this in relationships with people, in most intimate of relationships, we will get a lot, lot further. We will get a lot further because we're dealing with the whole truth. We're dealing with the whole person. Right? And when we deal with the whole person, there's a tremendous amount to be gained from that. Now, how did I get off on this tangent? Really because I wanted to say this. But the, the, how I got off on this tangent was because I, I made the statement that had Hagas HaMishpat that the conduct of Mishpat also comes, also comes from love. 
the two conducts, the conducts of justice and the conduct of God's exclusiveness, never collide because even the conduct of justice comes from love. Right? Now that's a very advanced concept, how it comes from love. How does it come from love? It's what I just said now. There's so much goodness, and there's so much goodness in you, and you're so deserving, and you can be such a recipient of good. Let's get rid of the, the silliness. Let's get rid of the barriers. Let's get rid of the walls. That's the context within which we can appreciate how justice can be a manifestation of love. Because the central focus is the giving, but we have to get rid of the barriers that prevent the person from receiving that goodness. Now, the reason why this is so central to this period of time is because when we slowly approach Rosh Hashanah, we got this whole month of preparation for Rosh Hashanah, the truth of the matter is that subconsciously we have a resistance to the whole concept of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. God is judging me. God is looking at me. I'm uncomfortable with that. Nobody likes to be judged. And we almost get this feeling that we're being forced to change. I'm an adult. I'll, I'll make the changes at my time and my pace. And uh, this is no way to accomplish anything with me, God. Uh, you have to give me my time and space. And now, we don't necessarily verbalize these things. And we would never necessarily admit to these things. But let's face it, underneath, we're relieved when Rosh Hashanah goes away. Whatever it is, very quietly to ourselves, we say, Baruch Hashem, it's over. Thank goodness it's gone. Right? And the reason for this is because we have a certain, um, a certain negative attitude to what judgment is all about. If we would look at judgment in the context that I spoke about this evening, that judgment really is God's commitment once again at the beginning of creation, which the day of Rosh Hashanah is, is how can I give man? How can I move man and history closer to their goal? And how does man fit into that scheme? And how worthy is he to be part of that scheme? That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. So then the appreciation of Rosh Hashanah is really an appreciation of an extension of God's love for man. If, if, the, if, um, if man looks at justice that it's motivated from love of what God want, wants ultimately to give to man that sometimes requires difficult periods of time, then the attitude is a much healthier attitude. We will speak in further weeks, we will speak about where the Jew gets the maturity of being able to face up to judgment and not to be afraid of judgment and have the maturity of knowing that it comes from love. It takes a tremendous amount of maturity to, to get the slap or to get the negative situation and to know deep down that it's really coming from love. But essentially, when we talk about Elul and we're talking about Rosh Hashanah, we have to take it in the perspective of what we spoke about tonight. That the primary thrust is the thrust of love. But the love comes up against walls. It comes up against barriers to be able to receive that. Getting back to what got me off on this whole tangent to begin with, in the Hanhagas HaMishpat, in the conduct of justice, Lazaro makes a, an interesting statement. The statement that Lazaro says is that Hanhagas HaMishpat starts off with equal ac access to right and to wrong. That was the statement that he made. And I'm sure that most of you are most probably wondering that that's not a fair statement. Equal access to right and to wrong? It seems to me that I'm much more inclined to do the negative and much less inclined to do the positive. So how does... Rabbi Meshachayim would start to say that in Hanhagas HaMishpat, everything, there's equal access and equal availability to, to each. 
the answer to this, and this really is not connected to what I said about before, but I just want to f- complete where I started from this evening. The answer to this is that when the system of Hanhagas HaMishpat begins, it does start off equally. And it's through the choices that man makes that it becomes unequal. Okay. Now, we can look at that from a historical perspective and we can look at that from an individual perspective. On the individual perspective, every person comes into this world that in certain areas, certain areas, the person is really involved in a toss-up. Should I do it or shouldn't I do it? Is it right? Is it wrong? Should I get involved? Shouldn't I get involved? There are certain areas that are very clear-cut and the person has the challenge of making a decision. Now, I admit that there are certain things that when a person comes into life, he doesn't even feel he makes decisions about them. Some of them are things that are right, some of the things are wrong, but he takes them for granted. He just moves into an environment that takes certain things for granted in terms of things that might be correct or things that are incorrect. And I'm not dealing with that this evening. But every person certainly has certain areas that when he moves into life, he is torn between to do or not to do, right or wrong, should I or shouldn't I. Is It's wrong to do, but in spite of it, should I do it, or is it the, the right thing is not to do it, and I should gain the strength to do it. That is where the concept of equal access is. But once the person makes a decision, it doesn't remain equal. Once the person acts out a decision, whatever decision is, if it's the correct decision or the incorrect decision, but after the decision is acted out, there is already a tampering with the balance. If, for instance, I did the negative thing, and I did it a few times, it could very well be that the negative now becomes much stronger than the tendency to choose the right thing. Vice versa is also true. If I make the right decision numerous times, I can become much stronger in the right choice, and the, the pull in the negative direction becomes weaker. So we enter the challenge on an equal basis, but it never remains equal, because depending upon the choices that we make, we, make a, we, we change the balance between the two. And this is something which is very important to realize. The imbalances that we are born into, where one pulls us more than the other, and we had nothing to do with it, we were born into it, God will not hold us responsible for. But for those challenges that we entered into them where there was equal access to both, and then we made a choice one way or the other, that's where our arena of challenge and growth is, and that is where we're judged. Right? And that's the statement that Lazaro is making. Now, this is true on a historical basis as well, in terms of history. History brings man to a certain point where things are not equal. And there are reasons for that also, but that's a very, very intricate thing which I wouldn't like to get into right now, the historical one. But on the individual basis, this is, this is true. Okay, I'm going to stop here. I, I think I welled up a lot of questions uh, in people's mind, and I'll, I'll dedicate the rest of the tape time to questions. Note, I said only the tape time. Okay, okay. Susan. Yes. It's not necessarily internal change in man. It's moving the world closer to the direction. But it doesn't necessarily affect an internal change within man. 
because if it would effect an internal change within man as, as a, uh, a one-sided act of God to create an internal change in man of any permanence, it would be colliding with freedom of choice. That's why when the Jew left Egypt, all kinds of spiritual things happened to him that were very positive, but they did not remain permanent in the Jew until the Jew took them and internalized them himself. For God to work with Hanhagas HaYichud and effect an internal change that is one-sided on God's part, imposing it upon man without man doing anything, that would be in contradiction to Hanhagas HaMishpat. Because then I would become the ear to a spiritual quality without having done anything to deserve it. Ultimately, that cannot be. Provisionally, God will give a person a spiritual present that he doesn't deserve. But that's on the installment plan, that man will grow into it, and man will become deserving of it but that it should be of any permanence without man responding to it and becoming deserving of it would be a collision between the two conducts. I don't know if that was your question, but I wanted to, I wanted to clear that up because that's a point that could be a point of confusion. Go ahead. Okay, so you keep talking about man and then you proceed to give examples about um, the Torah story and how that came about anyway, um, about the exodus from Egypt and how God brought that about anyway. Um, and then you keep Okay, I thought you were going to ask another question, but let me answer yours first. Hanhagas Ayichud refers to mankind. Because Hanhagas Ayichud requires all of the different parts of the world. For were any part of the world not involved in Hanhagas Ayichud, it would not have been created. All parts of this world were created to serve towards that ultimate goal. Now, that doesn't mean that everything serves the same function, the same role towards Hanhagas HaYichud, but everything is involved in Hanhagas HaYichud. Now, to, to continue on to the question that you didn't ask, but is worth asking, is there a Hanhagas HaYichud for the individual in the individual's own life? Hanhagas HaYichud. Okay? There is a form of Hanhagas HaYichud in a person's own life as well. And I will tell you where. It's a scary concept. Hanhagas HaYichud works... Uh, by and large, Hanhagas HaYichud is a global conduct where God is trying to move the world towards the ultimate goal. But there is Hanhagas HaYichud for the individual, and I'll give you an example of it. Right? Every single Jew that left Egypt, aside of being part of a national thrust towards the direction of the ultimate goal, there was something that was going on in every individual neshama when they left Egypt. Each one of them was gaining, getting a spiritual gift that they didn't deserve, but was giving them a, a photo flash of the greatness that they could reach and then become a motivation to reach it, to get towards it. That's an undeserving spiritual experience. Everybody sooner or later, in one way or another, gets undeserved spiritual experiences. These are examples of Hanhagas Hayichar on the individual level. Why does God give a person an undeserved spiritual experience? If not that God is trying to get involved with the person to move the person more in the direction of where he should be going. 
So this is, a, a, um, in a certain sense, an example of Hanhaga Sayyichar on the individual level. It's very interesting because Hanhaga Sayyichar has a tremendous responsibility with it, uh, which I have an entire tape which discusses this. The whole concept of Svira Sa'omer, the period of time between Pesach and Shavuos, is living up to one's personal Hanhaga Sayyichar. And there's a tremendous danger because if a person doesn't live up to it, right, there is a greater there is a greater incrimination of man after he gets an undeserved spiritual gift. If man wouldn't get spiritual gifts that he would that could become the basis for motivation and a direction towards God, so then what does God want from man? He didn't have enough motivation. But if man does get the opportunity and doesn't use it, that's what they call in English a heavy. That's that's already something that's much heavier to deal with. That so Hanhagas Hayichud is God's love, but like many gifts, there's a tremendous responsibility in that gift of love as well. All right, we don't want to end on a, but Jane. Exactly three weeks ago, not four weeks ago. Okay, I'm just fooling around. Yes, had they realized. Had they realized that they would get such great praise in the Torah, they specifically will be Okay. Um, I have the question, and now I really have the question. If wasn't what Ruvain did part of Hashgacha, or um, is Hashgacha sort of synonymous with what the concept you're talking about? Okay. So my question was, wasn't how could he have done otherwise? Had he saved, had he put him on his shoulders and ran back to his father with him, then we never would have gotten to Mitzrayim. And it was a whole, the whole thing was a plan. Okay. So how could he have done anything but exactly what he did? Now, according to what you said, that's not my question. According to what you said, it's not, that's not even a that's a, That is a question. That's a good question. Okay, well, that was the question I had three weeks ago. The question <laughs> I have tonight is, if, in fact, that was Bechira, then he could make such a statement. But if it was Hashgacha, then how could he make that statement? And how, in fact, can you reconcile the two? Isn't there a contradiction okay. between Bechira and Hashgacha? Okay, it happens to be an excellent question. Um, we have a 90-minute tape on this issue. Uh, no, okay. It, it does because we have a whole tape. Does fate, uh, fate versus free will? Do we really have uh, uh, freedom to choose? And essentially, that entire issue deals with the seeming contradictions between Bechira and Hashgacha. Hashgacha and Agasayichud—they're synonymous terms. You're correct in that parallel. Let me just give you, um, in a capsule form, the answer to this. Um, if if I can if I could just no no I'll answer this question no no the the answer to the question is the following it was definitely bechira on Ruvain's part let's just use Ruvain as an example it was full bechira on Ruvain's part the hashgacha was that things had to work this way. The Hashgacha did in no way compel Ruvain to do anything that he did. 
Reuven's decisions were his decisions through his Bechira. Now, what would have been if Reuven would have chosen differently? God would have looked for another way of making the connection. Making the connection between between getting Yosef, between saving Yosef and getting Yosef to Egypt. In other words, God has God has limitless possibilities of making it happen. But God will operate with his Hashgacha within the choices. It's noteworthy to mention that the same way that God was working within the good choice of Ruvain, God was also working within the negative choice that the brothers were making. You could ask the question from the brothers, what was the tremendous sin of the brothers? It must have been divine providence because Joseph had to land up in Egypt in order for us to survive as a people. So what do we want with Joseph's brothers? We should give them a yashikawach. We should give them a big thank you for selling Joseph down to Egypt. But the answer is that they did what they did out of their personal bechira with the information and the material and the motivations that were theirs. It just so happens that God worked within that to move Hashgach in the direction that Hashgach had to move. But it in no way influenced any person's decisions. Had it, had it, then you would have a contradiction on your mind. Then, 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 you, the, then there would be a true contradiction involved. Um, I want to stop here because